Let's just go, man. Let's just go. Do it live. That's how the, pro- the professionals handle things. That's us. Huh? That's what that's what people are often saying this about both of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is Rob here with Spooky J. Spooky J. <laughs> Jordan Yule. That's what he's being known as these days. Please, please refer to me only for the next few days as Spooky J. <laughs> spooky season. It's it necessary. Is. Yeah. Are you doing anything? Like any Halloween costume parties Ken, or any kind of... Ken and his wife and my partner and I are going to do like a ghost tour oh, of cool. DC. That's what we talked about doing. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, if we don't if we don't get scared. Is DC a big a ghost town? I guess it must be, right? I don't, think, I don't know. All man. kinds I, of nasty history there. Yeah, but just like well on. all of those things are always like... And people say that this building is haunted. I hope they take us to like the house across the street from Ford's Theater, and it's like Abraham Lincoln still haunts this house. Like that'd be yeah. That's like Ooh. yeah, that'd be cool. I, I would imagine that's just gonna be like, hey, here's the Exorcist steps from the movie yeah. over in Georgetown, and be, and probably some like weird houses where like. I don't know, Steve Bannon tried to start like a new like <laughs> fash group. I, I don't know. I'll let you know. <laughs> but that's it. I want to watch like so there's like some new horror movies out that I really want to check out. Um I haven't even seen X yet. And I heard that was pretty good. And Barbarian is now streaming. Um so there's a couple couple spooky movies that I would like to watch. Have you are you a spooky movie guy? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Is that just kind of like I guess, or are you into it? No, I am. You're not. No, I was just you. you kind of stepped on my. I was. I had a kind of a joke that I was. I was <laughs> maybe a little bit. I used to be a big horror movie guy. Maybe less so in the later years, but it used to be a big part of my sort of identity. Is part of my geeky sort of identity. Oh, really? Um, I was going to say though, you kind of stepped on my ability to do this, but maybe maybe Ken Klippenstein can go for his costume. He can go as someone who's not incredibly irritating. Oh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Sorry, that's good. I probably should have. I'm gonna splice that into earlier when okay. you mentioned. Get my reaction in there, though. Yeah, we haven't done the Ken, we haven't done the being mean to Ken no. bit in a while, and I just felt like it was time to bring that back. You know, our listeners love that the classic bit where we say mean things to <laughs> Ken Clip. Someone time. tweeted about the ban uh, to me like yesterday or two yeah. days ago, and I thought that was funny. It's like this is still a thing. This has been like <laughs> two years now. <laughs> <laughs> now he's just he hasn't been on the show for a while he's actually banned now it's yeah. really it finally took yeah. after all that now he's just big time in us yeah exactly after all that effort that's okay we're um, going above his head though we got us we got his boss on the show today yeah there we go yeah we're talking to ryan Grimm uh today that should be good we talked to him about the incredible political bravery of the the house progressive caucus and their <laughs> letter that they sent to uh, the biden administration about ukraine yeah just a, just a stunning display of of political bravery and ryan was able to come and break that down for us but also the stunning display of people on twitter who uh, five times a day tweet i stand with ukraine retweet if you do too with like a ukrainian yeah. flag like those are, i think in this conflict those are the real war heroes exactly and we should be celebrating those people. They're really doing the real, the real work mm-hmm. uh, out there. The real heroes. So that that's going to be a great conversation with Ryan Grimm. Um, as to your previous question, 
I am a big spooky movie guy. <laughs> oh, okay, I actually do have a story about this. Um, because, you know, I got my son, is uh, he's like turning seven years old. So he's, I've introduced him to a few little spooky things, you know, we have. And like we did one weekend, um, we watched like Ghostbusters 2. We watched uh, Beetlejuice. Um, you know, we showed him that. Uh, you know, there's been some fun. We have Monster Squad. We've show we've watched a couple times. You know, some some more kid friendly horror movies. And then I kind of mm-hmm. got it into my head that I was like, you know what? He really likes like you know he he likes this kind of stuff. He likes zombies and that kind of thing. He likes this like old. He likes old stuff. He really loves Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. He's obsessed with it. He's obsessed with Doctor <laughs> Jekyll and Mister Hyde. He's going as Mister Hyde for Halloween this year. He really <laughs> likes this kind of old stuff. So I was like, you know what? The original Night of the Living Dead. It's probably by today's standards, it's pretty tame. You know, it's black and white. Probably there's there's a million things that kids have seen by the time they're seven years old that doesn't even, you know, that makes it look like not that even that big of a deal. Like, we can probably watch that. That'll be kind of fun to watch the original Night of the Living Dead. And for the most part, it was totally okay. But then I did kind of forget. I loved the movie, but it had been a while since I'd seen it. And there is some pretty disturbing shit that happens in the, in the last act of that one. And I was kind of watching it, especially the scene at the end when the there's this little girl who like becomes a zombie and then like takes a big bite out of her father and then brutally murders her mother with like a garden trowel or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was kind of watching that just being like, oh, okay, maybe I I may have jumped the gun a little bit on this one. I don't know <laughs> if this is the best. I could have waited maybe till, se- till eight to, to bust this one out. <laughs> I felt a little weird about it. What what did he do? He was a little freaked out by it. Um, I think he was, that was maybe, yeah, there was a little bit much, but again, he seemed fine he's resilient. He didn't mind. And I made sure to explain that, you know, it's just, it's, it's a movie and all the people that made the movie when they finished doing it, they were all, they were all just pretending and they all went home to their families and they were all okay. And, you know, I kind of tried to do one of those things. Mm-hmm. But then the next day he was just like, I should not have watched that. That was really, <laughs> oh great, that was really violent. And I was like, yeah, okay, okay, maybe let's not let's drop this. Let's not mention this anymore. So that was my Halloween spooky movie, uh, movie awkward situation that happened. Nice. I mean, now he's got something to talk about in therapy for the next thirty exactly. years. That's yeah. great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can't make it too easy for them. You know, you got to give them. <laughs> For anyone, any parents out there, that's my that's my main thing. You gotta you gotta give them, throw them a few curveballs every now and yeah. then. You know, <laughs> don't let them get too comfortable. Oh, it's so funny. Uh, yeah. Was there He's a movie okay. that you ever saw as a kid that really scared you? Poltergeist. I was, think, I was thinking of one. I'll, oh, Poltergeist. I'll, oh, I'll yeah. go after you. How so? I don't know. It's just it was just something that I watched. Like I was obsessed with Ghostbusters when I was a kid. It was my favorite. It was one of those first movies that I saw that I was really obsessed with, and I just wanted to talk about it all the time. And I had all the Ghostbusters toys and stuff. But I just I remember that I think my my like older brothers and my family were watching Poltergeist, one of the Poltergeist films. And I somehow like I think I was maybe in bed, and I kind of snuck out and and caught a glimpse of it. And it just something some it triggered some horrible uh, reaction. And for like for years, my family would would taunt me because they would go Carolyn, because I guess there's some creepy guy in the. I believe it was Poltergeist three, who says Carolyn, and they would just say that to me like, Aah! "Stop it!" 
but yeah, it's just something that, that, that one messed me up. It messed me up pretty good. Uh, I have one that is like so funny to look back on now. Uh, but I, it was like, I must've been four or five and it's not a, it's not a Halloween movie. It's not, it's not a horror movie, but I, for some reason, you know, the scene in a Christmas story where the kid gets his tongue stuck on the, on the, okay. Pole? Yeah. That for some stuck reason, with you. it's stuck when I was like you. four or five. Yeah. It like freaked me out. It like, it, it, it Maybe it was like the bullying element and like him being kind of stranded there. And I like, I don't know. I just had this vivid memory as a kid of that just really disturbing me. Like this kid in distress and stuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I didn't want to watch a Christmas story for like the next few years. You know, it's always on. Because of that part. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just, I didn't understand. There was like, I think it was just on TV and I saw a few minutes and then that part and didn't really understand the whole movie that it was like a comedy and I like avoided it for the next few years until I finally got like a better understanding of that what the movie was about as, yeah. as like a young child that that part specifically freaked me out yeah I didn't remember the movie that much but I definitely remember the idea that a strong fear of getting your tongue stuck to a pole in the winter that seemed like a really like a per- pervasive threat yeah that could happen at any time <laughs> I don't know why. It's like one of those things when you're a kid, like, yeah, like you think quicksand is going to be this big problem in your life, you know? (laughs) It's one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. You think you're going to need some kind of of thermos of warm water to get your your tongue off there. Uh Never happened to me, though, nor nor anyone that I know, so I don't know. Yeah, thankfully. Maybe our our worries about our fears over it were maybe a little overblown. Who knows? Perhaps, perhaps. Um, What do you make of this whole... Uh, oil uh, stop big oil activists throwing paint and soup and gluing themselves to and whatever famous pieces of art i mean (laughs) like the art is fine you know it's okay yeah and i think people that are just like clutching their pearls about this or even people that are on the from the other side being like it's cringe or whatever like okay but i mean you know, we lose sight of the fact that we're in a very serious uh, crisis when it comes to our addiction to fossil fuels and how that that negatively affects the climate of the planet that we have to live on. Um, you know, I think sometimes we maybe lose sight of that. And I'm not going to get worked up over people that are engaging in this kind of activism, you know, <laughs> for to try to draw attention to this no one's being harmed by it the art is okay i don't really understand the pearl clutching over it you know just throw who cares you know throw throw the soup you want throw the soup at art if it's gonna if it's get people get people talk about this very serious problem you know let's let's do it i don't see the big deal yeah i i i think it's fine totally agree with what you said the art is behind protective glass none of it's damaged the frame on one of them got soup on it don't care that's not the valuable part oh no not the frame oh (laughs) my goodness and just like the whole reason they're doing this is because they know it is shocking and they know people will talk about it which will prompt conversations about why they're doing it and the moral imperative of taking action because climate change is such a devastating existential threat and 
the people who are like tut tutting it are the people who typically don't agree that we need to take drastic serious uh steps to rectify this issue or mitigate the worst consequences or outcomes and those people were never going to be on our side to begin with i don't i don't understand like the the cringe thing i don't care because i think just people who do that do that about everything because they want to be cool or want to be detached or whatever but like you're not helping sorry you're just not I'm, i'm like i'm so fucking exhausted with all of it because you're not doing anything anyway like if the people who just like for everything it's like oh this is cringe this sucks what oh this is lame okay lib like what are you doing what are you doing beyond just saying that and time and time again it's nothing so i i don't i don't really pay much mind to that i think that we have seen even the quote best biggest most historic climate bill among developed countries this is you know the inflation reduction act that's what the biden administration and his allies have framed it as that is not enough on its own it has you know also faced basically nullification in some respects because of this potential permit reform that mansion's been pushing and now it seems like biden might take up after the election and these problems are going to continue to fester that they're doing this is to inspire they're doing this to inspire conversations it's working people are still talking about it i see it constantly i learn more about the the big oil uh funding of art museums that i otherwise would not have and now also this comes at a time where we're in quarterly earnings season and today we're recording this on thursday shell announced that it like basically doubled its profit from quarter three of last year they're having record quarters again high gas prices uh you know just despite supply not being that expensive they're just profiteering off people's backs and you know we see exxon and chevrons tomorrow friday probably going to be similar uh a similarly successful quarter for them these companies are thriving they are under no threat from changes by the u.s to shift to green energy and the healthier they are the worse things will become for us so i think that the fact that we're even talking about this and the need for change because of these activists is a good thing yeah and like not only are these companies thriving but we're kind of allowing them in some cases to sort of rebrand um as companies that are compassionate and care about these the climate issues (laughs) and like oh exxon really is committed to this net zero future and using all these kind of buzzwords about climate um, and completely ignore their role in creating this crisis to begin with, um, you know, not just through the relentless use of fossil fuels, but th- as we've talked about many times, deliberate, like it's their own scientists uh, being at the forefront of climate science and understanding full well what what their activities were causing and what the result was going to be, and then deliberately covering that up. Like that's a serious crime. And not only are we allowing that, but like there are governments are doing it as well. Like you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, The Canadian government is in on this as well. You have Justin Trudeau who talks like he's this big climate warrior. Um, The Liberal Party of Canada recently released this this plan to have only zero emissions vehicles on the on on the roads by 2035 or something like that. Um, Something along those lines. Um, while simultaneously, just as, as the American government is doing doubling and tripling down on uh, fossil fuel extraction and pipelines, um, you know, fracked, fracked gas is a big part of the, the Biden administration uh, and what they've been 
offering to Western Europe as a alternative to uh, Russian oil and gas. So it's on on two levels, like on the private sector and the public sector, our governments are kind of pulling this sleight of hand, talking about the climate crisis and these big, big oil companies talking about the climate crisis, talking about them being part of these bold solutions, while simultaneously engaging in all the exact same behavior that's uh, led to the, the crisis to begin with. So... Yeah, the fact that there's some activists in the UK or wherever else engaging in activity that's at least causing these uh, discussions to happen. Yeah, like I think that's that's a good thing. We're already experiencing the the devastating consequences of it in North America and throughout the rest of the world, and it's going to be in the global south where a lot of these consequences are going to be the most devastating. And, you know, I don't think like we're we're nowhere near taking the level of action that we need to take. So whatever it is that people feel they have to do to try and force these conversations to happen, I, I would support it. And, uh, you know, I don't really get the pearl clutching over it or the, the finger wagging, you know, let people throw soup at paintings if that's what's going to get us talking about this. Do we need to do a lot more? Absolutely. But, you know, at least it's something. At least people are doing something. I take I take solace in that. You're right. Right. I'm all for it. I think it's fine. I don't I don't understand it. Understand the outrage, but whatever. <laughs> uh, people just like I, people just like to get mad about stuff. It seems like I'm learning people this. Are bored. Yeah, uh, I would say go outside and touch grass, but apparently that's you can't say that's, that. You can't. No, now. you can't do that. Oh Maybe or stay in and stay in and order some some groceries or. Those <laughs> we never got into that. We yeah. never got into that. I'm we not touching to that. that one day. No, I, I can't. I you can't. have to. I think I there's. Know. I think there's. I think there was like five whole days of discourse about that on Twitter. It was it's like it's perfect- actually, it's cruel. It, it's cruel and ableist to not be able to like whip your uh, a gig economy slave when they get you diet soda instead of uh, Coke Zero, you know? It was like the perfect Rorschach test for uh, like performative people on Twitter. It was, it was just how you see this issue. It was it are, it are you know some is someone who, by their own admission, from what I understand, is not disabled. Is them being moderately inconvenienced by their uh, Instacart shopper, saying things are out of stock. Is is the existence of disabled people uh, enough to allow them to go scream at somebody who is underpaid and underappreciated doesn't get benefits? And it was just whatever you whatever your worldview is, it was projected onto that. So it was all this like outrage uh, and, and and performative, you know, just trying to one up one up each other over which was actually worse. And it was just kind of this like oppression Olympics uh, on on social media for several days that I just like uh, like you didn't take any part in because I don't care. But uh, I just. I, I, I yeah. just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And then it was just like that fucking union cat got this some person who yeah. has a profile picture of the cat and just like tweets about unions, like all took one side and was the <laughs> worker side. It was like, oh my God, this is going to be, people were like melting down. It's like when, that's my fainting when, couch. When the cat is on the wrong side of history. Just when like, the, Cause <laughs> responding to a person who was like, I physically went to the store to confront the person who was messing up my grocery order. Yeah, not someone that was like physically unable to do anything, but literally just someone that was just like didn't want to and wanted to someone else to do it. 
Uh-huh. I was like, maybe you should just go do it yourself if you want someone to, if you want it to be done properly. And yeah, that was a big. That's what that's what makes me think. I think that's total. I think this is all an op. Frankly, I don't want to get too conspiratorial <laughs> about this. I think every now and then, it's like the CIA, whoever just needs to, we need to deploy the. We need to deploy the postmates uh, ableism argument again. We got some bad shit going on, and we gotta we gotta keep keep everyone distracted. I I think I, that's the only possible explanation that makes sense to me. And it also illustrated how like this is also why I just have kind of reined in how much I use Twitter and how I use it. It is not a place to have conversations like that at all whatsoever. <laughs> no, no, because nowhere was anybody saying disabled people shouldn't have groceries delivered to them no nobody i don't nobody was so. saying no. that but that was like a a narrative that people were driving advocates were driving it was like oh well i guess you don't want somebody who can't walk to get their groceries delivered <laughs> said, no, no that's not true nobody yeah. in their fucking right mind would ever say that <laughs> yeah no very bizarre it's a very bad place twitter i don't know yeah I've Congrats been, to everyone I kind of think, on, on a great round of posting, though. Pat yourselves on the back. You did yeah. it. You're the most woke person out there. You all did it. We'll be mailing your trophies yeah. out. Congrats, everyone. I find myself hoping, like, even if Elon Musk did buy Twitter, which I now guess is an official thing that's happened, maybe it will just die. And you know what? Maybe that's just going to be better for all of us. Maybe we can all just go home. How about that? <laughs> you know what I was thinking today? It would be such a funny thing like a funny origin story i don't i don't think this is why he did it but like the funny origin story for him doing this would be like him being really mad at ken over the <laughs> maxwell the maxwell picture just like that that day he cliff was just einstein like, yeah. yeah just fuming like oh i'll I show know. him i'm gonna get my revenge and he just yeah. like have, has has been gone f- about this like multi-year plan to get back at ken <laughs> he's been picking his spot <laughs> yeah he's been ready this whole time waiting in the wings uh, it would just be funny if he just banned Ken and that was just the only chain that <laughs> change that he made. And then sold it. <laughs> yeah. Buys it, bans Ken, sells it. And I would have to support it, frankly. You yeah, know? I agree. Sometimes Bold, he gets it right. Leadership. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Elon. Um, also an Insurgents LLC board member, as everyone knows. Yes, of course. Um, yep. So let's get, to, uh, let's get to our conversation with Ryan Grimm. Uh, he's going to be coming on in just a moment. Before we get to Ryan... Uh, just remind you that you can subscribe to the Insurgents podcast by uh, heading on over to theinsurgents.substack.com. You can become a paid intern of the Insurgents podcast for a measly $5 per month uh, that you pay to to the podcast or $55 annually. Um, subscribe to the Insurgents podcast. And let's get to our conversation with uh, The Intercept's Ryan Grimm. He is going to be joining us right after this. I don't know if we want any banter. If, like we covered that we were talking about vasectomies. Do we still want to talk about that? Or just for the first 30 seconds? <laughs> think we're covered? Yeah. Well, we're off to a great start. <laughs> the banter, some class of the classic insurgents banter that the listeners know and love. They love to hear it. I was gonna say we did that episode as I was like recovering and all hopped up on pain meds. Yeah, and I, I feel like I definitely overshared. Yeah, we maybe went a little bit too deep into the details of that. I think. <laughs> just, I, I, did, I just, I did, I did mine at a teaching hospital, which I don't recommend. But okay, I wanted oh, yeah. to get into those details. <laughs> uh yeah i mean but that said like it's fine and it's like 
routine and easy and you heal in like a couple days, you're fine. Like everyone should, yep. everyone who's in a position or considering it should just do it. Why uh, not? But that's not why uh, you're here. We have a special bonus episode where Ryan's going to like go, you know, step by step into his procedure later on for subscribers yep. only. But Ryan's here to talk about uh, the CPC letter that came out this week about uh, the U.S. involvement and, and potential diplomatic efforts uh, in, with Russia in relation to its invasion of Ukraine. And, and Ryan, for people who didn't follow this too closely, um, you know, there was there was a letter the CPC released and, you know, anti-war advocates and progressives cheered it on because it encouraged, you know, diplomacy and potentially a, a, a resolution or conclusion to this invasion. And as time went on, things got a little bit more complicated and ultimately it was retracted. So could you give people who didn't follow it that closely uh, a deeper look into what happened? How did we go from this is great to we're sorry, we should have never released this in the first place, we're retracting it? It was actually right. an intern that did it. We didn't even mean to. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yes. So like they sent it out Monday and the response was like, Fur- fast and furious like the, a bunch of big accounts on twitter uh, this was to, like really a twitter driven phenomenon uh it, it, people always say like it's, you can you can and should just for the most part ignore twitter um i'm glad they don't because that that's the only place i have influence uh but <laughs> they should ignore me they should ignore all the other like big blue check accounts and just push forward with material reality uh, but they didn't in this case and so they they think that the way that the Washington Post framed it as a dramatic kind of break from, uh, you know, current policy was was kind of unfair and like triggered a, a, a bigger reaction than they expected. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you, I, you could, you know, you could have framed it differently. You could have framed it as, you know, progressive caucus, you know, modestly asks, you know, Biden to, you know, add add extra diplomatic uh, component to his already ongoing strategy or whatever. You know, like, you, like it was a pretty modest proposal, but if you give it to the Washington Post, like what's, what, what, do, you ex- what do you expect from the Washington Post? Like that, that's, how, that's, how they write, that's how they write stories up. And it, you know, it would be if, if Biden started directly engaging with the Russians and, and pushing toward negotiations, even with unequivocal you know, continued support for you know, Ukraine's military, like that would be a significant move forward. Which was the point of the letter, like so, so that so that blows up. So they're like, so they, they start getting all this blowback, and then you start having some members like Mark Pocan um, saying, you know, criticizing it publicly. Uh, you got Ruben Gallego, you got Chris Murphy, um, a couple other letter signers. I think were reaching out privately, like, what's up with this? Because this had started to circulate for signatures back in July. It didn't come out until you know, Monday. Uh, so I, at that point, they, I believe, they could have just push for like push forward tweet through it be done with it um so and 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 point to the fact that the white house wasn't upset about it uh it's the saying the same thing as mike mullen as barack obama like you know you can cite all these other people that have said the same thing just push through it instead they issue a quote clarification and in their clarification they say of course there will be no negotiations until after ukrainian victory and it's like well (laughs) what are you like (laughs) What are you negotiating at that point? Okay, all right. All right. Uh, And so then now blood blood is in the water. 
And there, you know, now there's actual Dems in disarray. And so then the next day, they fully withdraw the letter. Um, and, you know, so Jay- and Jayapal puts out a statement saying that it was an unvetted letter that, you know, and blames staff for it. The irony being, you know, what she was implying there is that uh, they hadn't gone, they hadn't reached back out and said, hey, remember that letter you signed? We're sending it out tomorrow. Just a, just a heads up. Like, which, you know, frankly, they should have done. Like with something this big, go ahead, send, like send a note there. And there's also this system that they use called Quill that half the offices like use half the time. And so there would have been updates in there if, if people were checking Quill, but not everybody's checking Quill. You know how this goes in an office. So, she, OK, should they have emailed it out? Yeah, sure. But here's the irony. The Tuesday statement that Jayapal put out, she just put out. She did not like run that by the other 29 members who had signed it and said, hey, are you cool with me withdrawing this letter on your behalf? And so, you know, so, some members were like, how can Jayapal be blaming staff for what is standard practice, you know, for the CPC chair, which is to send out statements on behalf of the CPC without running them by members. So um, that was that was Tuesday. And then, you know, once you completely capitulate like that, then it just becomes a feeding frenzy because then because then nobody's going to defend you because you're, if you won't defend yourself and then it's just left for everybody to just dunk on you then then ironically you have people like um pod save yeah crew like ben rhodes um in that clip making the case that like this was a completely uncontroversial letter there was nothing wrong with it and he even yelled at the we called them like the ukraine stands on twitter he was like if you guys dunk on everybody punish everybody who calls for diplomacy, then anybody who's skeptical of, of the current policy, their only outlet is going to be Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson you know, was pushing basically to, you know, to cut him off. So he said, you are going to accidentally create the outcome that you're trying to avoid by being so nasty to the Progressive Caucus for just saying, hey, maybe we should do a little diplomacy here. And then sure enough, that night, Tucker Carlson had Tulsi Gabbard on and they said this just proves that you know the democrats are the war party yeah i think this is one of the most amazing things about this whole kind of fiasco is just how you know i think you could charitably describe their sort of progressive caucus position on this as maybe maybe being like five millimeters to biden's left on this like it was not this radical stance it was not like let's let's give all of eastern ukraine to putin they were not doing disinformatia or anything like that literally just saying like maybe we should have some kind of negotiation uh in conjunction with our endless arms transfers to the ukrainian military which just seems to be just a given for everybody and that's that's the i think the really such a stark example, the latest in such an example of just how completely unmoored from reality this this discourse has gotten, where anyone that deviates even slightly from this line of the only th- possible solution to this, Jordan and I were talking about this a, c- a couple weeks ago, the only possible solution is just unlimited arms transfers to the Ukrainian military and more and more conflict, more escalation until Russia's like unequivocal defeat, which just like that's not a guarantee to ever even happen. And like in the meantime, that's a lot of that's a lot of horrible violence that's going to be ongoing. And what right? What would that even mean? I mean, they could still like even if you kicked every Russian troop out of Ukraine, they could still constantly send missiles in. Yeah. Like, is that what we want? 
Well, that's what it seems to be like what a lot of people want uh, from, from the way that people react to me and some of my extremely controversial uh, stances on this that I've been uh, articulating. But I think that's the like what you pointed out, too, is just such a such a, a really dangerous part of um, this whole uh, discourse. Like the idea that, you know, it's like this this dialogue and this discourse has gotten so uh, outrageous that it's making like pod save America look like the gray zone. Mm-hmm. Like it's right. like, and I think that was a great point that what, what they were making on pod save America, like in that clip that, that you shared Ryan. And I think this is something that not enough people are paying attention to, which is that when you're leaving completely abdicating that entire uh, part of the argument to the right, to the Tucker Carlson's of the world, even these like LaRoucheite cultist weirdos, you know, mm-hmm. the only people that are that are articulating this kind of argument about maybe there needs to be another way of doing this or maybe people, you know, articulating to people that are skeptical about this, this kind of endless arms transfers. And it's only going to empower them. Like It's only going to empower yeah. just the, the worst people because that's going to be a very convincing argument, not only to people in America, but to people in Western Europe as well. When this big energy crisis hits in the in, in the coming uh, months as it continues to get colder, there's going to be a lot of yeah. There's going to be a lot of uh, uh, appetite for that kind of analysis. And if it's only right wingers or weird cultists giving it, it's only going to empower them. And to me, even the cynical argument that opponents of the letter made doesn't make sense. The cynical argument was, okay, maybe we agree with you, but this is really bad timing because we're just a couple weeks away from an election and we're all beating up Kevin McCarthy for saying that in a recession, maybe we, do, maybe we want to attach some strings, you know, not have a blank check. Uh, to Ukraine. And we're beating him up for that. And this is election season. So don't get in our way. Don't muddy our message here. I was like, well, okay, maybe you think Kevin McCarthy's an idiot, but like Kevin McCarthy's drawing on, you know, the advice of a lot of very smart political operatives when he's out there talking. Tucker Carlson, maybe you think he's an idiot, but Tucker Carlson certainly seems to think that it is advantageous for Republicans with two weeks ago in an election, you know, to be a party that is offering some offering voters, you know, some room for skepticism, uh, you know, around kind of endless uh, arm, arms transfers with, you know, with no, you know, sign of diplomacy around the corner. Like, m- like maybe you think that they're just completely wrong, but they they sure don't. Like they like they they are looking at the same polling, they're looking at the same kind of public sentiment around the war, and they are thinking that they're actually going to be end up being on the popular side of this. So they're not doing, they're not doing this just, just as a kind of moral crusade. Like, and, and the, the letter actually, or if not the letter, the, the press release that came along with it, not the letter, uh, included a bunch of polling that on this question and the American public is, you know, does support diplomacy as an end to this rather than, just an you know, open-ended war. So the, even even the cynical, like this is an electoral malpractice argument, didn't make sense to me. Like you, you want voters who have some concerns about here to feel like the Democratic Party is a place where they can at least have, have those concerns heard and aired out. That's where I'm really concerned uh, because most of the reactions that I saw in the immediate release of this letter were from you know traditional party line Democrats and supporters who, you know, had a, a, a ton of knee-jerk reactions about how this was just giving Putin what he wants, or they're siding with Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, ultimately cheering for more war, and it illustrates people's detachment from war itself. It's very easy to tweet about how you're standing with Ukraine from your 
you know, your apartment in DuPont Circle or from your home in the <laughs> middle of America. Like you're not under attack. You're not at any risk. But I mean, it has already killed thousands of civilians in Ukraine and including a, several hundred children. And your solution is we need more war uh, for the foreseeable future. This long protracted, bloody, violent thing that has displaced millions of people and put millions of millions more people on the brink of starvation around the world because of how it has affected the food supply and prices and you're just cheering this on because you have been conditioned to think that we need uh you know to stand up to to putin and this is a guy like you said you could these you could still lob missiles from russia who also might resort to even increasingly uh drastic and and severe measures if he is further embarrassed and i, I i'm just I, i'm really worried about that being a predominantly democratic reaction to a really modest proposal of peace and diplomacy and how that might seed ground to the right for, for hollow demagogues like Tucker Carlson and now uh, new, quote, Republican Tulsi Gabbard to exploit. I'm really worried about that. I'm, I'm wondering if you if you have heard that from any progressives in Congress who maybe initially signed it but then had to uh, retract their names or other progressive groups? Is that something they're worried about? I think that they are... I think they wonder at this point whether the people... Like, let's... Like, I think they're starting to associate a lot of the um, calls, you know, all, all, a lot of the anti-war calls with a, either a populist right or, or a, a, like, checked out, uh, you know, nut job conspiracy land like LaRoucheite type position like I, I don't I don't think and I think they're wrong I think that those are the loudest voices but I think that they're and like we were just talking about the public polling you know it shows that this is you know a pretty you know common concern across people of you know Democrats independents Republicans but I think what uh, what a lot of Democrats progressive Democrats in Congress have done is they've they, they believe that people who are yelling at them about this are just hate them period and and they're never supporting them they're kind of dem exit type who uh are just looking for a reason to attack them i don't i don't think that that's right but i but i but my sense is that that's the impression that a lot of progressive democrats have at this point and you know they're kind of on their own in, in a lot of ways you see this they like they take this very ginger step and if you notice like for the most part the kind of anti-war left or whatever you want to call it either ignored the letter or kind of attacked it as too weak. So it's, so it's not like they have some kind of groundswell of support for kind of making these kind of modest interventions in the debate to try to crack open a space for debate and dialogue around this. And so uh, from the one side, there's, they don't, they're not getting any support. From the, then the other side, they're getting absolutely crushed and annihilated. Um, so I do think there's a, a sense of kind of powerlessness. Another question I had uh, was about the reaction and kind of speculation, or if you want to call it navel gazing, at Jayapal's role in this. And there were a lot of criticisms about how she handled it. You know, she blamed her staff. That turned out to be probably not true. Like I, I can't imagine well, just even knowing if, how even if comms it's offices like, work. Even if it's Go true, ahead, yeah. like even if it's true that they didn't give a heads up, which I think they should have, and and certainly they did not. They, they did not give a heads up to some offices. Um, even if that's true, you like mistakes are made with the rollout of every single thing, and you pull it off anyway. Like the, the to me, the real mistake was in in caving. Like you just push through on this, 
and you're done with it. Yeah. And so it's over yeah. by like Monday night. And we're not talking and about you, this at all. We might be talking about the like, like, yeah. You pointed out how the post was like maybe sensational and how they covered it and how that kind of fanned these flames. But I feel like that's something the CPC really needs to understand is probably going to happen most, <laughs> if not all of the time when covering yes. something they do. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. How are they unprepared for this? Right. I mean, if you're if you want to go to the Washington Post, then prepare yourself for. Yeah. The Washington Post likes to get people fighting like that's what that and like that's not a judgment. That's just what they do. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Right. And also you should, you know, in, in some respects, you if you're doing this letter, you want this fight. Like you want yeah. the attention around it. Yeah, I, I guess for me, it's just the the thing that I found the most frustrating about the way that this discourse has gone is that people have seemed really eager to to swallow this really kind of black and white, very trite kind of good versus evil narrative about what has gone on here. And any nuance whatsoever about, you know, the role that that the West played in fanning the flames of this conflict, which I don't think should be that controversial when you talk about, mm -hmm. you know, the expansion of NATO, the role that the West played in, in you know, destroying Russia and humiliating Russia in the in the 90s. Um, and the way that the West has been, you know, pumping arms into Ukraine for years now prior to this breaking out. And I think if you can kind of ignore all that context and you just view this as some battle, but fundamental battle between good and evil and the Americans and the West are on the good side and the Russians are the evil side, then of course, and having any kind of dialogue is just completely off the table or having any kind of negotiation is just not even an option. But that's been the, the disheartening thing, I think, is just like people have just been so steadfastly unwilling even to acknowledge that the West played, even, a, even if you want to admit it, that is a small role in fanning the flames of this conflict of uh, providing Putin with this justification. Not that that means that it is justified or that it's good, anything that's happened, or that um, the, the horrible violence that has ensued is a good thing that, that anyone should celebrate, but even just this basic reality that the West has played a role in provoking it. Um, and people have just been really, really unwilling to even entertain that notion. And that's what's led to this very myopic uh, uh, discourse about it, where there's really only yeah. one option, which is further, further violence and further war, and that's the only thing we can ever discuss and it's, it's really hard to talk about that without it coming off as if you're justifying it because people have such a hard time holding two thoughts in their minds at once yes. and so i think a lot of people are just like well forget it i'm not even i'm not even going to try to get you to hold these two thoughts in your mind at once the the other element of this that has has had me shaking my head so much is you you constantly see this argument um on the one hand, from like a Julia Yaffe type that Putin is a bloodthirsty monster and just must be you know, annihilated, which people just don't seem to like take that to its conclusion. Then, OK, well, what do you mean then? Like, yeah. So you want him out, like what you want? To well, that's, that's, like, that's what, the like, inevitable conclusion of the Putin equals Hitler. The right. constant and comparisons. So, and, well, what and does that, that mean? We need World War Three. Is that the only possible solution to right. this? And, like it kind of seems and like then that. A, and then a sort of corollary of that one is that how can you negotiate with putin you can't trust putin um because and you and you point to things that putin has agreed to and then and then broken with it's like if if a country breaking a treaty or or their word meant that you could never negotiate with that treaty again okay start <laughs> come on people like, yeah. <laughs> think think here yeah. has the united states ever made any diplomatic promises high profile ones even even in recent years, and then <laughs> no one just knows, yeah. and just abruptly walked away from them. Has have we ever done that? And you know, 
if you don't, you know you don't even have to talk about the Iran deal. Like you could talk about like negotiations around NATO and Eastern Europe. Like if you're a if you're a Russian citizen and you're hearing that it's that the United States thinks that Russia doesn't live up to its bargain, you're like, wait a minute. First of all, we after the fall of communism, we expected that we were going to get like a Marshall Plan. Like we were very, you know, we were led to believe we were going to get a Marshall Plan and rebuild the country. Um, instead, we got, you know, completely stripped of, of everything by the West. Um, because which is a massive they, human rights disaster, too, right. the reality of, course, of it. Right. It's like, which the Russians should have recognized that the Marshall Plan was implemented as a counter to the Soviet Union. So once the Soviet Union is gone, <laughs> there's no, we don't have any need for the Marshall Plan anymore. Okay. So then, so then from there, after uh, Ukraine becomes independent and, uh, and other, there are these other breakaway countries coming out of the Soviet Union, we make all sorts of pledges and assertions that you know, we're not going to creep NATO any further eastward. And this is even separate from the question of whether the United States or NATO kind of provoked this. Like, forget, put that aside. Clearly, 1,000%, we made pledges that we then broke. And we still feel like we're allowed to negotiate we can we we feel like we can engage in diplomacy, you know. I'm, I I I would urge the United States to engage in diplomacy now with Venezuela, with Cuba, with with you know uh, try to mediate between Ukraine and Russia. Like we're not incapable of diplomacy just because we are like demonstrably not trustworthy. Like no country is one hundred percent trustworthy because you still have interests and you still have politics at play even after you've signed whatever you've signed. But that doesn't mean there's no point in diplomacy. But then so people like apply that to Putin, but don't apply it anywhere else in the world. It's the same level of attention has not been um, uh, given to some of the aid packages in this push in the Senate now by Jack Reed and, and Inhofe, uh, who basically want like <laughs> a blank check and emergency powers for the Pentagon. Um, and this would, you know, refill our stockpile and and allow you know ease i guess the flow of weapons and munitions to ukraine uh and i'm just I'm, well the pentagon's really yeah, hard I, up for cash so it makes sense that totally they need the, i they get need it the extra okay. we, gotta, we have a gofundme yeah. in the show notes if anyone can help <laughs> out um but like i just i just it, it speaks to obviously how people don't cover this type of stuff um in a real holistic way and also how comfortable people are with the status quo have you seen progressive groups or progressive members of congress talk about this and because in the letter it said like they're they're fine basically supporting even more aid uh which i thought was like uh you know a, a pretty big olive branch to the hawks yeah. so and, i, I and just right, don't understand how this right. isn't even meant part of the discussion well it is now at least so hey thank you progressive caucus yeah. <laughs> like, like the, the the people who had been like Mike Mullen and others who had been, you know, urging, uh, you know, negotiations, they had been mostly just been ignored. Like, oh, that's an interesting comment, and then moving on. But now, and pe like Pod Save crew, for instance, like now, now you're now those con now because of this controversy, at least those voices are are being heard. So, in some ways, they started a conversation, and in, in other ways, they they you know it was set back badly. Those dangerous tankies at the Pod Save America. Right. <laughs> I've been warning people about these guys for a while now. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it speaks to how to how 
absolutely absolutely unhinged some of this discourse has gotten um yeah, yeah it's, i think you know the last time this came up jordan you brought up our interview with with spencer ackerman a couple months ago and um I think he said something at the end of that show that has stuck with me a lot. And and Spencer, in kind of giving sort of an explanation for how this events happened, was very, very clear in not using that explanation to justify anything. Or we were very clear to say that, you know, an explanation for anything is not a justification for it. We're very clear, and I'd like to be clear with both of you now and our listeners, that Putin bad. Okay, I agree. Invasion's um, bad, even yes, if they're provoked. absolutely. Yeah. And so, and but Spencer was really uh, said something at the end of this episode that stuck with me that people are going to have to, and this has not happened. This was way back in March tenth of, of uh, earlier this year. That people are going to have to kind of separate the idea in their minds of saving Ukraine and defeating Russia, and we have to understand that these might be two mutually exclusive uh, ideas, and that's the kind of very discouraging thing about where this discourse has gone over the last couple of months, which is no one has really been able to do that. No one in kind of a main, with a mainstream platform and no one seemingly, um, you know, with a higher position in the U S government or the, the Canadian government. Um, and it's, it's the longer this is going on. It just seems like the more entrenched people have gotten in this position that, that defeating Putin, defeating Russia is the only possible solution to this. And, you know, it's weirdly as well, the people that have been arguing for some kind of negotiation or trying to, who have been talking about wanting to end the war, um, which would actually save lives and prevent Ukraine from continuing to be a war zone, um, are framed as the sort of dangerous radicals and the ones that are just have this one single minded obsession with uh, further conflict and defeating Russia and humiliating Russia are the kind of reasonable, uh, the, the reasonable liberal sort of position. And it's just it's as I was saying a couple of weeks ago when this came up, I'm going to continue saying it. It's just kind of a sort of dangerous situation when this is where uh, this is where the discourse has gone. And I would like to think that maybe this incident will get maybe people starting to think about different ideas. Like I was encouraged to see the, the pod Johns talking about this, but hmm. it still seems like there's a long way to go before people start really internalizing this idea. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be a brutal winter, and you know, we don't know, you know, how, how the shape of this is going to go. the The reaction from some Democrats who signed that letter in saying, "Well, yeah, yeah, I signed that in July. That's when Ukraine was getting, you know, whooped, but now they're on the rampage." Like that was, you know, that's not how they said it, but that was basically their point. That like this, you know, the this the, the context was different. The objective conditions were di- were different when I was calling for uh, peace, you know, calling to for diplomacy to end this war. That's that's also like a weird way of. I mean, I get it, but like that's not a very principled commitment to diplomacy. Like o- only when you're on your heels are you gonna are you gonna call for it. But you know, once you're once you're moving forward and making gains on the ground, um, then let's just let's just keep it going, even as this the winter approaches and you have millions of people. Who are going to be suffering and dying from you know they're just, you know freezing to death, um, disease from you know sewage treatment plants not working. You know so many people don't even have windows um, because their windows have been blown out, and there's been, there's no way to get replacement glass in. Um, you have a nuclear power plant that is still on the front lines of a war, and this is before you get to whether or not Putin like escalates this to actual an actual nuclear strike. Like what like. And and because Ukraine is you were and you were against that when Ukraine was in you know not was kind of in a stalemate, but now you're like for allowing all this escalation because they're making some gains on the ground. 
which perhaps you could like win those gains back through diplomacy and some offers of sanctions relief or whatever, you know, whatever, and some pledges of not joining NATO, what, you know, whatever, like get to the table and maybe you get that back anyway. And now Zelensky yeah. saying he wants Crimea. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, like, <laughs> I'm not so sure that that's going to be, that's, that's a realistic uh, ask, right. and, you know? But like, according to our stated theory of, well, it's up to the Ukrainians, we don't have any say in this, then we have to be like, okay, here, here you go, fire away. I think the, like to Rob, what, what you were saying, the Spencer quote about separating these two things is defeating Russia, which... I mean, think about how, think about the early narratives in this invasion. It was, it was not this, you know, strong, mighty, resilient Ukrainian army. It was, you know, people making, I mean, even media outlets were like showing like, this is how you make a Molotov cocktail. And you saw all these human interest pieces like praising just, you know, grandmas who were fighting back. I mean, that is not a, that is not a country. If that's the framing that we should accept, it's not a country is well equipped to defeat a superpower a nuclear superpower. And I think to, to, and to what Ryan is saying that the timing and the shift and what kind of footing you're on, uh, that's dictating apparently whether or not we should be engaging in diplomacy, I think is totally mis. Yeah, I think I agree. It's just totally misguided because this letter came out on the heels of a few weeks of fear and nervousness and skittishness about, you know, Putin resorting to something drastic him being like Ukraine being on much stronger footing than they were in the summer doesn't mean that things are going to be a breeze going forward. It, it, I think that increases the likelihood he could resort to something like that. I, I pray he doesn't. Uh, but I think that's something that people need to consider. And that's why at the same time, and this was also not mentioned in a lot of the coverage, uh, Austin has been communicating multiple times over the weekend was in communications with Russian military officials. You know, we don't know the, the, the full context of those calls, uh, but like he had, he had at least two calls in three days with uh, the head of the Russian military. So it's just like there are conversations happening. I think just the the issue for so many people was that it was the progressives doing this two weeks before the election. That was something I kept seeing. How could you do this two weeks before the election? It's like maybe it doesn't fucking matter to to Ukraine's right. who just right. want stability when our midterm election is. Yeah. Right. And not right. And and if you want to be cynical and be like, you know what? There are plenty of people who are receptive to that message. So you can you can yeah. have it both ways actually. Yeah. There are a lot of people who see the Democrats as, and as they I think would be great if they leaned into it, but see them as the, the anti war party. I, I yes, hope the they number, take up that mantle. If there are any if there are any PhDs candidates like listening to this, like one dissertation I'd love to see somebody do would be the effect of midterms on our imperial foreign policy. Because I, I can't yeah. I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I remember, you know, just, just reading through history, like so many times like deci- decisions are made around like what you're doing in Nicaragua or whatever like what you're doing in the Philippines or whatever around midterms. Well, you know, we would like to like get a deal here and get this done. But, you know, we're only we're only 12 months away from the midterms of the, you know, the, the 1910 <laughs> midterms or whatever. Um, you know, the all important, most important election of our lifetime, 1910 midterms um, or whatever, or whatever the midterm coming up relative to a certain conflict is. And so then the result is that they just ramp up the conflict because that's safer yeah. politically. And then, oh, guess what? Now there's a presidential election coming. 
Yeah, and then um, you get I, into but, stuff with like Nixon and Vietnam or like the Iran Contra sure. stuff where, you know. But so I wonder if you could actually statistically draw some correlation between kind of U.S. conflict abroad and midterms or it'd be, it'd be, a, it'd be really it'd be good. A, be an interesting PhD, I think. Yeah. I don't think we have any, any PhDs listen to this show, though, unfortunately. <laughs> not the, I'm going to mute myself here, but not the brightest, not the brightest listener base. Yeah, we got to cut that. Yeah, I'm going to make sure to edit that out afterwards. But uh, they, they won't under, they won't understand what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So. Okay, just getting back into it. Okay, Ryan. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time today to talk to us. We're just laughing at an unrelated uh, joke that happened earlier yeah. uh, off yeah, mic. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, so Ryan, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. We know you have to get going soon. Likewise. But we appreciate you joining us once again. Yep, you got it. All right, see you guys. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>